Hello and welcome to this month's Naked Neuroscience podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. This month, it's a special Q&A show. We've recruited a panel of brains to answer some of your burning neuroscience questions. We'll find out if a whole brain transplant is going to be possible in the near future. So, could a modern-day Frankenstein be created? And if so, is it too terrifying a prospect? Or could it help those with spinal injury? The idea of transplanting brains did have some media attention earlier this year. Um, An Italian neuroscientist wrote an article suggesting that a brain transplant could theoretically be achieved by transplanting the whole human head onto a donor body, and he proposed a method for reconnecting the severed spinal cords. Plus, prosthetic limbs have been developed, allowing amputees to precisely control a robotic limb, say for example a leg, to walk, run or kick a football around. How does that work and what are the other applications? For example, a patient in a wheelchair can control the direction of the wheelchair by thinking about it. I want to go right and the wheelchair turns to the right. But first, let's meet the brain panel. I'm Bill Harris. I'm a professor of anatomy at the University of Cambridge and I study the early development of the visual system in fish mostly. Hi, I'm Katie Manning. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Psychiatry and I'm looking at the structural and functional connectivity in the brains of people with a genetic disorder called Prader-Willi syndrome. So I'm Mike Edwardson. I'm Professor of Molecular Pharmacology in the Department of Pharmacology here in, in Cambridge. And I, I'm interested in looking at protein, structures of protein molecules. So I use a, a, techn- a novel technique called atomic force microscopy. And let's find out what their burning brain questions are. Kickstarting with Mike, then Bill, then Kate. How memories are formed and stored, I think, is a really fascinating question that I'd really like the answer to. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when England won the World Cup in, in 1966. Younger people don't have that memory, so there's something different about what's going on in my brain to what's going on in, 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 in people's brains who don't have the memory. I'd love to know what that is exactly. My whole life I've been interested in the question of how brains are built. It's a very, very complicated organ and it has zillions of cells and zillions and zillions of connections. So how does that get built so accurately that it works? That's the question that fascinates me. I think that the brains are incredible in the way that they provide the interface between us and the world that we live in. Uh, Each and every one of us is different and we recreate our world and our understanding of everything by using our brain. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. So Mike, Bill and Katie's brains fire up when considering memory formation, nervous system construction and how our perception of the world is formed. But what about you? First up, Cal Debedal got in touch asking how far away are we from being able to simulate a whole brain in software? So starting not even with the complexity of an entire brain, but just simulating a single nerve cell of which there's a humongous hundred billion of them in your brain. Well, we've been uh, simulating neurons for a long time. The question is, how good are we at simulating a particular neuron and its fullness? Depends on which neuron you're looking at. All the neurons are different from each other. And people have been trying to simulate different neurons, and we can do it pretty well, but never to completion. The same thing with the brain. People simulate pathways in the brain, work out models for how 
uh, information goes from one place to another, and it's getting more and more sophisticated. But to simulate a brain, which brain are we talking about? A frog brain, a human brain, your brain? Um, that may be more and more challenging. There is a lot of interest now in trying to model whole brains but they're using supercomputers. So there's a lot of funding uh, just been awarded to a project in Switzerland where, which is called the Blue Brain Project where people are trying to use very powerful supercomputers to model the whole brain. We're really at the beginning of that and I think it's going to be many years before useful data arise out of that project. When you say useful data, what do you mean by that? Because I think every model produces some data that's at least kind of a hypothesis for what it might be doing, so it's testable. So models are valuable as far as they go, and they throw up problems with our current understanding. So I might argue that the Blue Brain Project, even in its early phases, will give you answers that may ring true or may not, and that that lead to further sophistication of, of the model. I mean, I think that's a good point. Uh, to be honest, I'm slightly sceptical about whether this is the, a good use of uh, money and w whether I would fund this or not. I think if it was up to me, I'd probably fund far more, slightly less ambitious projects. And so, so I'm, I'm actually slightly sceptical about how useful this will be. I mean, do we know enough about the brain in order to have the knowledge to simulate it in the first place? So there's a, a number of, sort of large multi-million pound projects going on at the moment um, that are trying to map what's been called the human connectome. So using some of the newer imaging techniques that we've got to look at the brain to look at both the structural and the functional connectivity between different areas. Um, we know quite a lot about this in some pathways and in some sort of networks within the brain, but we don't know in its entirety exactly how all areas of the brain work together, how the patterns of activity in one set of pathways might influence the pattern of activities in another set of pathways completely um, in all its complexity. Obviously if we could it would be a very useful way to perhaps be able to model what we might expect to happen in the use of certain drugs or certain medications um, in development. Let's say you look at a, a, a circuit in the spinal cord that's involved in walking. People have been studying something like that for quite a long time and understand to um, a medium degree of understanding, I guess, the neurons that are involved. But it's not by any means complete, how we walk faster or slower, how we change gait from walking to running, how we um, jump and hop and skip. What are, what's the circuitry involved? What are the neurons involved? We don't even know those in a very small part of the brain. Similarly, when light goes into our retina and all the cells are connected up in the retina. We don't know what all the cells are doing. We know what some of them are doing, many of them are doing, but completion of this task, how far away from completion of the task, is kind of hard to say. So yeah, I just I think that just because we don't have like fully complex and in-depth models of, of a fully functioning brain in terms of software doesn't mean that people should think that we don't have useful models. Um, so obviously there's entire fields of neuroscience that are largely devoted to using software and using it to model the way that the brain works and that both helps us in developing theories that we can test and also taking the things that we have learned and putting them together and trying to work out exactly what is going on by running different iterations of them. 
And along that line, there's um, a paper that was published actually last month. So published in Nature, researchers at the Institute of Molecular Biology in Vienna, Austria, managed to develop a 3D organ which resembled a nine-week embryonic human brain. And they developed this from um, human stem cells. And it grew to between three to four millimetres squared. And they think that this kind of seemed to mirror some of the activity of a functioning kind of brain-oid, they called it, and may be useful in the future for trying to uncover, uncover more about schizophrenia and autism, for example. Uh, I'm not sure what this little mini brain in culture has to do with modeling a whole, simulating a whole brain, I take it, has to do with getting a mathematical model that predicts the interactions and the activity of different things. This little mini brain made out of embryonic stem cells certainly has some wiring to it as a bunch of neurons in a culture dish would if you put the dish together and it may be a little bit more like a real brain than a bunch of neurons in a dish that are randomly connected to each other but that's such a far away away from a real animal's brain or a human brain. But do you think some of the information that could come from this brainoid could help to input into the computer simulations? No, I, w I, would, uh, I would study real brains rather than little mini brains, each one of which is going to be different from each other. So Roshan Shrista has got in touch asking, is the transplant of a brain going to be possible in the near future? So, uh, in fact, the idea of, of transplanting brains did have some media attention earlier this year. Um, an Italian neuroscientist wrote an article which has had quite a lot of discussion suggesting that a brain transplant could theoretically be achieved by transplanting the whole human head onto a donor body and he proposed a method for reconnecting the severed spinal cords. Um, and in this paper he referred to the work of a, in the 1970s of Dr White uh, and he transplanted a rhesus monkey head onto the body of a, another rhesus monkey. Um, and the monkey was apparently able to see and smell and taste and, in Dr White's words, bite. And he did this with the idea that eventually a human head could be um, transplanted onto a donor body and it might help people who had healthy brains but some degenerative illness of the body. So while the animal awoke, it was reported to live for a, a very short time. It didn't really have any use of the body because they weren't able to reconnect the spinal cords. And has that study been replicated since the 1970s? Well, no, uh, it hasn't been replicated. Of course, the ethics of doing a research programme like that now would be very questionable. It just wouldn't be allowed. The easiest part will probably be connecting up the blood supplies, but connecting up the n broken nerves is a real problem, especially in, in the central nervous system, the spinal cord. However, you can transplant brains in embryos. You can transplant... Uh, an embryonic frog brain from one frog to another. You can transplant an embryonic chick brain to a quail. Uh, lots of brain transplants are possible. It's when you get to the mammals um, that it becomes particularly challenging because the nerves don't regenerate so well and they don't cross cuts. So when, when you cut a, a nerve cell axon and you want that cut nerve then to be able to regenerate its axon and make connections with the appropriate targets. It has a really hard time doing that in a mammal. This leads us rather neatly onto the next question. So David Bailey has been in touch saying why can't the brain and nerve cells heal and other tissues can? Skin cells replace themselves all the time. So we're always making new skin cells. Most of our brain cells 
we're, we're given just one of each, and they have to last our, our lifetime. And there's not a lot of cell replacement in the brain. So the question then becomes, if a cell dies, it doesn't get replaced because we have no mechanisms to re replace it in, in our brains, whereas we have mechanisms to replace some skin cells or muscle cells. There's something intrinsic about the nerve cells that doesn't let them regrow so well. The distances are a lot longer in an adult than they were when they were connecting up as an embryo. And when you get a, a cut in the central nervous system, there's a reaction, an, an environment, that makes it difficult for cells to regrow through that injured environment and connect up properly. So brains have a couple challenges in healing. I think it's important also to say that the brain can adapt to, to injuries to a certain extent. So with other parts of the brain working together to take over lost functions from the damaged area, even if that's not as efficiently as, as it happened before. Um, and also that the brain does have some fairly strong defense mechanisms. So when you make a cut in your skin, it might happen you know, in everyday life, you're doing some cooking, slip with the knife. But the brain, it's, it's protected, it's in the skull. There's two um, membranes beneath the skull and between that there's a, a cushion layer, so to speak, of, of cerebral spinal fluid. And then even beyond that, you've got what's called the blood-brain barrier, which helps to control some of the substances that can enter the brain. The brain isn't exposed to harm then in quite the same way as an organ like the skin in everyday life. And next question. So Tia Gibson has been in touch asking how do prosthetic limbs understand the med messages from our brains? I mean, there are prosthetic limbs now that do respond to thought, uh, for example, and how that works is pretty complicated. I've just been looking it up myself, and as far as I understand it, what happens is when you amputate the limb, let's say you amputate the lower leg, what you do is to preserve the nerves that are supplying the, the bit that you've chopped off by attaching them to muscles in the part of the leg that remains. And then the limb is, is, is then basically responding to changes in the, in the muscle that's being re-innovated. The limb is being controlled by a computer and is sort of learning that when a particular part of the muscle mass twitches, that's a signal to make a particular movement. So you can actually you know, have a prosthetic arm with a hand which will allow you to pick up objects by uh, replicating the movement that's, that would have been there if the arm and the hand had been there. Yeah, my understanding is that it's sort of prosthetic limbs where they can receive some of the signals from the brain is that it acts like a pattern analyzer effectively. So the nerves are reconnected to a muscle higher up. And then as you think about doing something like moving your arm, opening your hand, closing your hand, those sorts of things, the computer learns, it has sensors in the prosthetic arm and it learns what those pattern of the muscle contractions in the, in the higher up muscle, what that means in terms of what, what movement you're thinking of. And as the sensors pick these up, the computer looks at the pattern of muscle contractions and reads that off as which movement is intended. And then that creates it in the prosthetic limb. There's also been some progress in, in a kind of EEG control of prosthetic devices. For example, a patient in a wheelchair can control the direction of the wheelchair by thinking about it. I want to go right, and the wheelchair turns to the right. It depends on the sophisticated ability to analyze electric patterns in EEG-type recordings from a kind of a bicycle helmet connected to the skull. Well, just a helmet you could wear that would pick up your brain waves and interpret them and then you learn to, you know, 
think think left in a way that the wheelchair understands and it will go left. There's some very, very early research being done into actually using the reattached nerves and muscles and sending signals back so that you get a very rudimentary sensation or stimulation that can be interpreted as touch by the brain, so using a prosthetic limb to actually get some sort of sensory feedback as well. And Georgianne Lavery has been in touch saying, I read that Einstein's brain was normal size, but he had more folds. Is that true? Is there any difference between Einstein's brain and uh, yours or mine or anybody's? So um, upon Einstein's death, his brain was removed and it was photographed before being dissected. And the majority of the slides are now stored at the National Museum of Health and Medicine uh, near Washington, D.C., the latest description of the structure of uh, Einstein's cortex, so the, the outer bit of the brain, did suggest that the cerebral cortex folding pattern was unusual in areas that might be related to cognition and mathematical reasoning. And he also had a uh, slightly large area of one side of the hand control region, which was thought to be linked to his violin playing and I heard that when he died, um, they, they performed this autopsy, and there's some controversy about whether or not he did actually donate his body for medical research. They performed this autopsy, and they uh, fixed his brain with formalin. Mm-hmm. And then they cut it into 240 blocks, really small blocks, and basically scattered Einstein brain blocks around the world to different researchers to study. Is that true? Um, that does sound like that was largely what happened. I think the main researcher that had um, taken part in the dissection, he he kept a lot of them, but he certainly did lend out slides and and some of the tissue samples, which is why not all of them are uh, entirely accounted for today. We've often, I think, over, over time, a lot of times when somebody who's been seen as having a superior intelligence dies, people have taken the brain to try and have a look at what makes somebody really, really intelligent. And I think that's an interesting idea, but a lot of people have cautioned about the fact that everyone's brain is slightly different. And so by looking at somebody's brain, you can't tell whether the thing that looks slightly different on their brain to someone else's brain is actually functionally relevant, whether it actually determines what made them more intelligent or what made them really good at a certain thing than anyone else. I suppose humans are always looking for patterns, aren't they? They always want to see some reason, some kind of basis. Yeah, Bill? If, if Einstein was particularly good at algebra and mathematics... If. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, maybe he wasn't so good at something else, but do we even know which part of the brain is involved in algebra? I don't think so. Generally, as well, we're moving away from understanding particular discrete regions of the brain as being involved in doing this exact task um, and, and understanding the brain more as networks of different areas which work together and, and that sometimes those networks will, will overlap and sometimes they'll be slightly different and that it's actually the recruitment of lots of different brain areas that give rise to abilities to do things. I, I have heard that Einstein's brain may have had more glial cells. So these are kind of the supporting cells that help secrete factors like cholesterol, for example, that help nerve cells to connect with each other. So, I mean, this is obviously just one observation from one study that's been published. But do you think that could be true? Again, I, I find it hard to think that Einstein was more brilliant at every aspect of every bit of life than every, everyone else. He had certain fantastic abilities, that's for sure and he was a good violin player. But was he fantastic at everything? No, you're probably more fantastic at some things than he was. Maybe you could dance better than he could. And so th- th- there's a part of your brain that maybe we should 
fix and scatter around the world when you die. <laughs> Thanks to Katie, Bill and Mike, the brainy panel who are tackling your burning neuroscience questions. We'll return to them in a bit, but first, here's your quickfire science tour around your brain with naked scientist Simon Bishop and myself. Your brain weighs about 1.5 kilograms. That's about the same as a bag of sugar or your typical cauliflower. It looks a little bit like a cauliflower too. Your brain makes up about 2% of your total body mass. Even though it's not that heavy, it's a greedy hungry beast, your brain, consuming about 20% of your daily energy quota. But what's using all this energy? Well, there's almost 100 billion nerve cells up there. That's nearly 12 times the world population in terms of nerve cells in your head. These cells use electricity to send signals by pumping charged ions in and out of the cell. They then communicate with other cells by releasing neurotransmitter chemicals like dopamine and serotonin. Each nerve cell is connected to between 1,000 to 10,000 other nerve cells and it's these connections that make up your brain network. So in total, that's almost 1 times 10 to the power of 14 connections in your brain, or about 100 trillion. The human brain is the fattest organ in the body. Over 60% of it is fat. This fat wraps itself around the nerve cells and helps to insulate the electrical signal. This makes communication along the nerve cells faster and stronger. Nerve signals can reach up to 120 meters per second, or about 300 miles per hour. Contrary to popular belief, we don't use only 10% of our brains. It is true that we only use a few specialised brain circuits at any time, but the rest of the brain is constantly ticking over in a low gear, ready to be put to work. You can find out more about how nerves work in our latest science scrapbook at thenakedscientist.com. Thanks to Simon Bishop for joining me for a quickfire science tour around your brain. You're listening to the Naked Neuroscience podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. We'll return to the brainy panel who are tackling your burning neuroscience questions. Katie, Bill and Mike. Brittany Lewis has been in touch asking, are we able to exercise all parts of our brains and make it bigger in order to be good at everything? So there are a few areas of the brain where uh, new neurons can form right throughout life um, and the hippocampus, which is involved in memory and learning, is one of them. There is evidence that the hippocampus can become bigger as a result of certain experiences. Exercise is one of them. It can help to, to generate new neurons. A typical example of this is the hippocampus size in London cab drivers. And they have to learn the entire London A to Z and then pass a complicated test called the knowledge and Maguire, the researcher who's looked at this a lot, has followed a group of successful and unsuccessful taxi driver trainees. And she showed that an increase in the posterior hippocampus was associated with those that did pass the test and went on successfully to become the taxi drivers. So just by training, just by trying to pass this knowledge test and kind of exercising their navigation, spatial reasoning skills by navigating through London in their black cabs, they actually grew one part of the hippocampus. But was this at the expense of another part of the hippocampus or another part of the brain? I think it was at, at the expense of the anterior hippocampus. Which is the region that wasn't involved in this navigation, um, spatial reasoning kind of skills. If you pay attention to a certain kind of activity, you may use more for that and at the expense of something else. 
Blind people, I think, use their visual cortex. Sighted people would use it for vision, and blind people can use part of their visual cortex for other tasks, perhaps auditory tasks. Yeah, probably the, the point is that the brain is, isn't able to infinitely grow. There are size constraints, but there are also constraints on what you choose to do with your time, and we, we tend to choose to fill our times with the things that we enjoy and the things that we're good at. And quickly now closing up, so Matt Burnett asked, why is it that when I drink coffee it can make me more sleepy and other people seem to drink coffee and wake up? Depends on the time course. I'd be surprised if you if somebody would drink a cup of coffee and then immediately feel sleepy. But I think it's perfectly uh, reasonable to, to feel sleepy a little bit later on because what's happening when you drink the coffee is that caffeine, in fact, is complicated, but its main effect is to block the action of a transmitter called adenosine, which is a sort of a dampening down uh, transmitter, if you like, in the brain. So when you block the effect, then you feel more awake. But later on, when the coffee effect wears off, half of it gets eliminated in every four hours or so. So when that's gone, you have the adenosine still chugging along there, and then that may then switch you the other way so you feel more sleepy so I don't know the circumstances where you would drink coffee and then suddenly feel sleepy except perhaps if you had a strong association with coffee as a thing that you took next to going to sleep like children hear nursery melodies and they're put to sleep by it if you had a routine in which you drank coffee and then went to sleep it may be a signal to to, to sleep and would help you get to sleep. Is that possible? Or maybe he associates coffee with incredibly boring activities like being in the office or... Feeling really tired. Maybe there's other listeners out there who experience this also. If so, we'd like to hear from you. OK, so last question now. Anya Kempista has been in touch saying, I've heard that taking medication for ADHD, so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, so medicine like Ritalin, um, she says taking this over a long period of time, so years, has been linked to compulsive behaviours like gambling, sex addiction, etc., is there any evidence for this? What's happening here is that there's a link between, I, I, I'll probably be corrected, but the, 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 there's a link between the gambling and the ADHD. ADHD people are overrepresented in compulsive gamblers, and I think that's well established, but I think the connection with Ritalin is much less well established. So you're saying that people with ADHD are possibly more likely to become gamblers? That, that seems to be the, the, the evidence, yes. Um, and I, I would agree with that. And, um, I think that cause and effect can often be very difficult to disentangle. So a lot of research has shown also that children with ADHD are much more likely to go on to develop substance abuse problems. Um, and actually a recent study that was done at UCLA looked at children with ADHD who were given medications like Ritalin and children who weren't given medications. And they found no difference in the risk for developing substance abuse later in life. So it seems to be something to do here with the ADHD rather than um, the medications. And that seems to make sense as well because the typical presentation of ADHD is the person may be slightly more impulsive and more likely to take risks. So, for example, they might enjoy gambling or they, they might be more likely to abuse substances or go for substances of abuse in the first place. Um, yes, that's true. Does that mean the people who took Ritalin for their ADHD didn't get an improved outcome in terms of their gambling later. If you, if you correct the ADHD with Ritalin, doesn't early training help you later in life? 
I think there's been some papers published where quite a lot of child ADHD cases are then taken off their medication early 20s and then they're not continued to be treated as adults and it's at this point when they're off their medication that they're then more likely to become addicted to drugs of abuse for example or, or have problems with gambling. With people with ADHD it seems to be a case of some disrupted um, reward systems and, and attentional control dysregulation. This is what the Ritalin tries to address. And in fact, one study that used Ritalin, um, a study done in Cambridge that used Ritalin in people with frontotemporal dementia, so elderly people who are starting to become less able to use the cognitive control capacities, actually found that giving Ritalin to individuals with frontotemporal dementia actually decreased their risk-taking behaviour. And that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. Thanks to all of the listeners who got in touch with their questions and to Professors Bill Harris and Mike Edwardson and doctoral researcher Katie Manning from Cambridge University for taking on your questions. I'll be back again next month to find out how neuroscience is infiltrating the military. Until then, if you have any brain questions or comments about this show, then get in touch. It's hannah at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Neuroscience or you can pop it on the Naked Scientist Facebook page. And you'll find the full transcript for this episode and other Naked Neuroscience episodes on our website. That's thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience. I'm Hannah Critchlow, and this is Naked Neuroscience in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. See you next month to open our minds. Thank you.